2: Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.
3: Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio.
2: This time, a former Suns player who you might remember as T-Rex. More video in just a moment, but this is Rex Chapman's Mugshot, and we are learning a lot more about the
1: Charges. Charges.
3: What do you realize now that you look back on it and you know so much more
4: about yourself and mental health? I stayed home for like four straight months. I didn't do anything. If I left my house, I went to the psychiatrist. That was the only time I left my house. And like right away, this like weight just lifted off my shoulders. And I was like, oh my God, I don't actually have to play. If I didn't have the support system I had, there's no telling where I'd be today.
3: Welcome to Charges. I'm your host, Rex Chapman. Mental health is a hot topic in sports and in the world in general these days. We see it with players like Naomi Osaka and Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and countless others who have talked about the pressure and the struggle to cope with social anxiety, depression, and a host of other mental health ailments and issues. I bring that up because today my guest is Marty Fish. Marty was a top 10 tennis player in the world and suffered one of the more public battles with his mental health in the prime of his career. We're going to talk with Marty about that. He's done an amazing job and commendable job when it comes to sharing his journey. Marty really deserves a ton of credit for being someone in the sports world who recognized and dealt with his mental health issues almost a decade before it became something that was accepted and understood. This is Charges. 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 Marty, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for that intro. Appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) I know when I come on shows, I'm always like, oh, man, they really loved me up. So uh, we try to (laughs) knock out all the good stuff there. Uh, Marty, let's go back to the beginning. How does tennis enter your life as basically a baby in Minnesota?
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, I come from a tennis family. Um, My father teaches tennis, still teaches tennis. uh, Went to the U.S. Open even before I was born as a fan. Um, So, um, you know, pretty cool history of kind of tennis, sports. Uh, My sister played collegiately. Um, I guess I got my sort of my I guess my sporting talent from my mom. My dad was a uh was one of those kind of hard workers, went to University of Minnesota, tried to play, you know, a little bit and just didn't have the the athleticism or, or uh the talent that it took, but certainly had the work ethic and stuff. So um instilled that in me pretty early, um, which was nice and um, you know, just couldn't have had a better uh, more, you know, sort of more comfortable upbringing, um, really lucky, you know, the tennis is a a gnarly sport. We can get into that as much as you want, but, but in terms of tennis parents. Um, I put tennis parents right up there with with any parent of any sport um, as crazy as any of them are. And I've been super lucky, super lucky with that.
3: That's amazing. That's amazing. I don't know if people realize this, but tennis seems to be one of those sports like gymnastics or golf where, you know, a child basically people can tell, you know, oh, this kid's special. And uh, if we nurture this talent, who knows where it could go. Looking back on that time in your life, what do you remember?
4: Yeah, I remember getting started early. Um, you know, I played my my first tournament when I was six years old. Lost 6-0, 6-0 which is as as bad as you could possibly do. Um, I play. I
3: tried to play when I was young. I mean, yeah. I love. I did love it and was passionate yeah. about it. When I started playing the other sports, I stopped playing, but loved it and loved growing up. I, you know, growing up watching Borg and McEnroe and sure. and all those guys. So well, you're I dating a big, yourself, man. I, you I know. I'm a big right tennis fan. <laughs>
4: um, no, yeah, it's um you know, you got, you, you start early, uh, life expectancy on, um, you know, in tennis is not as long as you would think, uh, being a non-contact sport, uh, you know, as you know, our, our joint, you know, it's a lot of running obviously. So like joints and hips and knees and stuff like that, feet, um, you know, take the brunt of it. Um, and we're running around on on concrete for the most part. So, um, you know, it's, uh, sometimes an hour sometimes five hours you know and that's that's one of the hard things about tennis right is that like you get out there and you can train for whatever you want to train for but it could you know you could play a i played plenty of grand slam matches where i won or lost in an hour and a half and 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 a bunch of them where i played over four hours and you can't you know it's really hard to uh prepare for that um you sort of have to prepare for the four and hope it goes shorter than that but um but that's you know that's kind of how it started and and you know it's sort of fast forwarding throughout your career and to the end you're you know i retired when i was 32 years old and you know for a bunch of different reasons which we'll get into i'm sure but um you know why did you retire so early it's like well you know i've been playing i've been playing tournaments since i was six years old people don't understand that i, I played professionally for 16 years but uh, uh played tournaments since i was six so it's a it's a it's a long time to do anything that wear and tear i
3: i feel you um and i i was retired at 32 as well but again started playing when you're in grade school you know and and serious about it when was it clear to you that tennis was going to be a really big thing in your life and do you remember how you felt about that at all
4: um you know look i i love sports always have always loved sports uh you know, born in Minnesota, moved to Florida when we were around four or five years old, um, still keeping the the roots of Minnesota sports um, in my blood and and rooting for them. Timberwolves, Vikings, Twins, Gophers, even though I didn't go to college, my dad went to University of Minnesota, so I can root for the Gophers. So like diehard, diehard Minnesota sports fan. Um, again, I, I love sports. I loved playing all kinds of sports. So I played I played high school basketball. I played, you know, baseball up until I was like 13 or 14 until I kind of had to stop um and played competitive golf until I was 14 as well. Um when I was 15 I moved over to a place called Saddlebrook Academy which is over in uh a little north of Tampa, Florida um to sp- uh, spend my sophomore year of high school there and see um I was ranked about 50 in the state of Florida at the time, which was fine. Probably would have gotten me an education, you know, free education somewhere. Um, But certainly not professionally um, by no means. Um, And I went uh, to Saddlebrook, started spending. I grew up in a a small town in Florida, Vero Beach, Florida, and and, um, went over and started playing against people that were better than me every day um, and and got to where I – I went from, you know, 50 in the state that next year to number one in the state and probably top couple in the country. Uh, my, You're my not living sec- at home though, right? You're not living no. at home? No. How, that? So, How that? was that?
3: How was that? Middle of high school?
4: Different. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, at first I wasn't driving, um, you know, I was 15 years old and and I'm very close with my parents, my dad and my mom. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't Looking back, I mean, you know, that part's not easy. We weren't that far away, straight across the state, maybe a two and a half hour drive or so. My parents came over all the time. Um, I'd go back and see my friends because again, like this is a sacrifice that people sort of forget is that like I didn't have that normal upbringing where, you know, I'd go visit my friends at Florida State or something like that. And like, you know, I missed that college experience. I didn't have it. I didn't have the normal high school experience that that other kids had. So, um, you know, I went to a sort of a specialized school where I went to school for three hours, which probably felt like 20 minutes and uh, a day. And I, I'd play before and after school all day, every day, you know, and, and, and got a lot better. Uh, let's
3: talk about Andy Roddick and your relationship with him and his family. Tell me about how that all came to be.
4: Yeah, so... Um, After that uh, sophomore year in high school, I went back to Vero Beach um, and sort of spent like the first quarter um, or maybe half a semester uh, at high school in Vero Beach. And I knew I was a different tennis player and I knew that, you know, probably my career trajectory would likely either take me to whatever college I wanted to play at for maybe a year or so or just take me straight professionally. Um, I always wanted to be a professional athlete. Like I didn't necessarily care what sport, honestly, like I, you know, tennis just happened to be the one that I was best at. Um, I loved tennis, don't get me wrong, but, but that one was the one I was best at. So there was a a gap there where, uh, Andy and I, and, um, a few other guys, maybe five total guys, um, They were very highly ranked in the country, went down to train with a guy named Stanford Boster. He was like a a hard nosed. uh, If you didn't bring enough rackets to practice, if you didn't bring extra grip, if you didn't bring an extra pair of shoes or something like that, he'd drop you off. Um, at one of the exits on 95 and tell you to run home, you know, sort of 10 miles or eight <laughs> miles or whatever it was. So like very, you know, like really yeah. good for us. Really yeah. good for like a punk kid, 16 years, 17 years old, thinks he's better than he is or knows he's really good kind of kind of kid. Um, and, and we were all good kids, but we knew we were good. And we were cocky, too. And, and so he was really, really good for us um, in terms of putting us in our place, making us work really, really hard. Um, and and he was the guy that we shared a coach with so i I didn't have anywhere to to really live um some of the guys lived with Stanford and his wife, and I didn't necessarily want to do that Andy and I were real close, so you know they invited me to to basically live as as Andy's new brother at his house and um, Andy had an older brother named John, who was a, a very, very highly ranked junior player and, and good collegiate player with the University of Georgia. Um, so they they had some tennis blood in them as well, and um, a- Andy was special for sure. And you knew um, you knew that uh, he was really unique um, in, in terms of on the tennis court Why? and. Uh, Well, because he he had this competitiveness, you know, and you always say like, oh, he's so competitive, you know, like every athlete's competitive. I feel like, again, and this is like the same thing with like there's two sets of athletes, in my opinion. There's also two sets of like competitiveness in athletes, I think. One, hates to lose, which wasn't necessarily me. Like that was John McEnroe. Like he just hated to lose. Like he could not stand losing, right? That wasn't me. I love to win. That was me. Like, so it's either you hate to lose or you love to win. Andy hated to lose and he loved to win. And it was like that, like, there was that, like, competitiveness that you just don't see very often. Um, And if I look back at, like, my career and the guys that I played throughout my um, sort of tenure, and and I was obviously lucky to play the Feds and the Dolls and Djokovic's and those guys, um, he was like a Leighton Hewitt and a Nadal Sort of wrapped into one where um, he would refuse to give in at all. He was feisty. He was nasty. He'd tell you anything you didn't want to hear on the court. He'd get into it with you. He'd try and hit you with a serve. I mean, he was—he had this monster serve and he was just nasty, you know, like in turn on the court, you know, and like. Did you guys of, get
3: along like brothers?
4: Did you get yeah, along so, that so way? We, were, we weren't best friends. We were brothers. We fought at everything. We fought. We competed. Uh, we drove separate cars to school. This when we were going th- from the same place to the same place because I thought I had a better, I had a, I had a faster route than he did. You know, like that's what we competed at. We competed at girls uh, that's who great. could get, you know, who's yeah. going to date who uh, on the <laughs> basketball court. We play one on one, obviously on the tennis court. You know, and that would go back and forth for the most part. Uh, you know, back then, um, and so yeah, I mean, we were we were uh, going through life's sort of you know high school changes and you know just sort of life's changes um sounds like a great movie same time you know (laughs) yeah at the same time you know and like and yeah i mean we uh, the best i could put it is just we weren't friends we were we were brothers like you know and and just fought at everything literally
3: everything what what were your early years like on the tour and if you don't mind, can you explain how going pro in tennis and working your way up? How does that go?
4: Um, so it's, it's all I mean, tennis is really uh, tough in terms of there's only one thing that you're that you're judged by, and it's the number by your name, you know, and like that ranking is all that we really have to go by. And. In golf, it's a t- they have a two year ranking system, so it's like you're not as stressed to like you know to continue to show results on the grind, yeah, yeah, just like have result after result after result, and also not looking forward or ahead or or looking at the last twelve months or twelve months ago and going, oh well, shoot, I made the final last year, so um, you know I got this to defend and these amount of points to defend and stuff like that. Why wouldn't tennis
3: do that? Why wouldn't tennis do that?
4: We tried. They tried. Uh, 2011. Nadal came around to all the guys in the top ten and said, you know, even him, who's who was, you know, one or two in the world at the time, or really the entire career. So he he went around and tried to get everybody that was in the top ten to sign a a petition that said, can we change the ranking system to a two year ranking system? Because even someone like him who was ga- gaining thousands of points. Um, more than everyone else, uh, still was stressed about the process of of every 12 months, um, uh, you know, having to defend, defend, defend ranking points. So like, and since the ranking is all we sort of have to go by, um, it can be draining mentally.
3: Being a professional athlete in any sport is difficult due to the spotlight and scrutiny you and your teammates face. Marty and other tennis players have to go at it alone. He offered us a unique perspective on being a ranked solo player, especially when your peers and dear friends are ranked ahead of you. Marty had a solid career, but admittedly thinks it could have been better. A tale consistent with many athletes who look back at their careers. A road riddled with regret is one I can relate to, but hearing it from Marty's perspective on how the pounding he took on the concrete really paints the picture for what was coming next.
5: Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here.
6: sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com.
1: Toyota, let's go places.
2: Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.
3: So you're on the tour, you're in the mix a bunch, but I guess fair to say you weren't a top player in the upper echelon. Uh, What was that like? Did you just enjoy competing and traveling or enjoying the game or was it killing you to win?
4: It was hard watching someone like Andy be number one in the world and, you know, because I always rooted for them, but that didn't mean that I didn't want to be ranked ahead of them, you know, or or beat them all the time. It was one of those things where I just didn't understand the full dedication that it took um, to get everything out of it. I was very um, up and down. I, my results were very mixed. Uh, I could beat anyone. Um, I had... I beat Federer in in less than an hour um, in Indian Wells uh, one year in the semifinals, a huge match, uh, probably the best match I've ever played. Uh, And then I would I wouldn't you know, and I'd make the final of a massive tournament, get my ranking back, you know, from 80 to to 30. And then I wouldn't you know, then I'd lose a bunch of first rounds in a row. You know, I just was not consistent at all. I didn't do a good job of taking care of my body. Um, That's certainly one of the first things that I would have changed. You know, there's athletes sort of, they're just like, oh, I have no regrets. You know, (laughs) you're you're lying to yourself, you know, like you don't have any regrets. Like, come on. (laughs) So one of my regrets certainly would have been to take care of my body better earlier. Um, It just wasn't something that we did back then. You know, 2001, 2002, 2003, it wasn't a huge emphasis on – your body, taking care of your body. There also wasn't like back then. If I, when I remember, like high school and like late high school or early, like it was, it was cool to like sort of slack off back yeah. then. and you know yep. how that's changed a lot over the years. It's like you know, with all these. I'm looking. I've got like my office slash gym here, my my COVID office slash gym here in LA, and I've got a, a Peloton over here and a Tonal over there and a Peloton, and I I do mixed martial arts, so I've got a, a boxing bag over here and a kickboxing bag and like it's cool now to like be fit and to work out and to like, you know, do that. But back then it wasn't, it was like, it was kind of cool to show people I didn't care quite as much, you know?
2: That is not the only thing that Americans are excited about as the new American number one, Marty Fish is taking on world number two and undefeated Novak Djokovic. Fish surpassed Andy Roddick for the number one spot after Roddick as the defending champion fell out of his first match. And 14 seeded Fish defeated the likes of Julian Beneteau, Richard Gasquet, Juan Martin Del Pocho and David Ferrer in succession. Fish can potentially enter the top 10 in the rankings.
3: Let's jump ahead uh, to 2010 or maybe uh, that off season. You decided if it was really possible, if you could push your body and train like never before. And your trainer says in the doc that you lost like 30 pounds, which uh, you already were an elite athlete. What was that like to hit that other level? And what was that
4: motivation? Uh, Yeah, it's a great question and and one that I had like uh, desperately isn't the word, but I definitely wanted to try and get into shape. I knew I could be in better shape. I wasn't like overweight where you're like, oh, look at that guy walking down the street. He's overweight. I was overweight in terms of that's a professional athlete overweight, you know, and so, you know, that. Uh, sort of uh let's see that fall i had a knee issue that that needed surgery um and it was because i was just i was too heavy i was pounding too much on my knee and the cartilage uh had some cartilage damaged and it cleaned out and it wasn't like a super invasive surgery it wasn't like a crazy one it was like what was your weight six, at the time what was your i was weight? two 203 uh 203 but i'm i was i'm six three six four with shoes on six three but but i'm not like I wasn't 6'3", 203 jacked. Like, no, 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 Like I was like shaped like a pear kind of, and little like, little doughy you know, baby. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. still yeah. had baby fat on me when yeah. I was 27 years old. I was like, <laughs> I don't know if that's baby fat anymore, dude, or it's just fat. So, uh, so I finally felt like I had the time, um, you know, because like our off season is like six weeks long. So if you're healthy, it's brutal to be able to try and do that. You can't do much in six weeks. Um, and I knew – I had our, my surgery September 28, 2009. The reason I remember that is because I'm, I was my first one-year anniversary of my wife and I's uh, wedding. So um, what a one-year anniversary to, to yeah. go under the knife and, and do some rehab after. Uh, <laughs> um, and so my, my trainer and I and, and my wife, too, we we all sort of set out, didn't have kids at the time, and we hired a chef. Um very, you know, kind of low, you know, low budget sort of thing, though, like, you know, 25 bucks an hour kind of thing. You know, it wasn't a couple hours a day. Uh, she found, got the food, cooked the food, told us how many calories were in there. My my trainer would sort of calorie count, guesstimate what I burned, um, what was going in. So we watched every single thing that went in my body for about three months. Isn't um, that was, amazing,
3: though, to see the transformation?
4: Was, Just was, diet, was on purpose. Diet. Yeah just diet so the first six weeks it just felt it flew off and that's not normally the case you know like it takes time and i i you know we were under five to seven hundred calories every day on purpose um you know and i was eating like 13 1400 calories a day which is not a lot of ca- i mean if you like you go have a cheeseburger and a fry and that's it that's all you can eat that day um so I, I clearly I wasn't eating that stuff. But that's just to get, you know, give me an example, obviously, you know, but to give me an example. And um, so the first six weeks, I was starving first eight weeks or so I was starving, you know, and I thought I was the fittest athlete in the world in terms of like anaerobic, like, you tell me to run, I'll run, you tell me to do this, I'll do this until you tell me to stop. And I won't complain. I won't do anything. I won't, I'll just do it. And um, so I went to the first tournament and I'm, I, you know, and again, I've still got this knee issue and like, I'm, you know, rehabbing that and take care of that and stuff. And I feel like it's different, you know, go down to Australia, have, you know, a little bit, you know, win a few matches, but I'm just, I feel different. I go to any Wells, lose first round, feel a little different I go to Miami and I beat Miami. I beat uh one, one match and then beat Andy Murray, who's the defending champion um in straight sets, second round. And again, like I always knew I had that, like, I had that one or two matches in me that I could beat anyone, but it was the consistency that never was there. So then I won the next round and the next round. And I'm like, okay, well, still, though, you know, that's one tournament, you know. And so I'd go, and i go to Houston, and I'd, you know, and that's on clay courts. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, I'd play a good match and, you know, play a long time and feel like I could play forever. So I get to the French, and this is May of that 2010. My results hadn't necessarily come yet but i knew something was different you know and i didn't i didn't understand it until and clay was always my worst surface because my game was tailored i was a faster court player i you know it's just the way i was that's the way i played i I played i came to the net i played uh, better on grass played better on faster surfaces just the way i played I, i didn't dislike clay i just wasn't very good on it and um and I, I won my first round in five sets, and then I played uh, Ivan lubicic I think he was, you know, four or five in the world at the time. Uh, great player, great clay court player. And I lost to him like, but over a two day match where it was like one, you know, we were in the fifth. It was like four all in the fifth, or four all in the, or three all in the fifth. We had to come back the next day because of darkness, um, and it ended up going like twelve or like. 12-10 or 14-12 or something I lost in the fifth set. But dude, I came off I walked off the court and I was like I could play another five sets right now. And that right there was like it clicked and I was like something like I this is different. This is different. I could play differently. I can play different styles. Um I could play a clay court style of tennis, I could play a grass court style of tennis. Um went to uh, Cincinnati and made the final of that tournament, lost to Federer in a really, really tight match. All of a sudden, I'm ranked like 25 in the world. And I know I'm different, man. Like, I just, like, I made the fourth round of of, uh, of the U.S. Open, and I well, made the final of Tokyo, lost to Nadal. I made the, you know, whatever. So fast forward to, you know, that, off season and 2010 off season into 2011, my best year kept going. The next year, uh, that off season, pushing harder and harder, not taking any any time off to like you know reset my mind or anything. Um, and that's kind of where the the expectations changed a lot. It seemed like you know from the
3: beginning though of that season, it was like you're, it was almost like you were going to have issues. Then the condition with your heart, right? Yeah, and you know, you're also starting to have you know a panic attack here and there. Well, I just needed
4: an excuse to have it, you know, like my body needed like an excuse to have some sort of trauma to where I was like, okay, I'm going to dwell on that for a while. um, I had a, an issue with my heart called tachycardia, fairly common. Uh, it's a, like an electricity issue around your heart. There's a bunch of electricity, electrodes around your heart. And when they fire, it tells your heart to beat. There's like thousands of them. So when it fires, fire, ba-bum, fire ba-bum. and they can malfunction. And when they malfunction, your heart doesn't know but to beat because they're firing. So I trained at a, a an incredible rate where I would follow my heart rate at all times, I would have a heart rate monitor on when I trained. And so I would try and get what I do is I try to get my heart rate up to as high as it could possibly go. And then in 25 to 30 seconds, which is all we have in between points, I try to get it as low as I could get it to and then do it over again and just do it over and over and over in training, right? Um, I knew that I couldn't get my heart to beat more than 192 beats per minute. I never saw it uh, higher than that so and that was that was my threshold everyone's different but that was my threshold 192 I'll never forget it and um I would have these uh electricity episodes where they were malfunctioning and they were just firing like uncontrollably and your in my heart again my heart didn't know but to beat and it was beating at like 220 230 beats per minute like so I'm thinking as uneducated about the heart as I was um my heart's gonna like Blow up or something like what you know, because why is it going this fast? I couldn't get it this fast, and from there it just started spiraling to where I was like, I fixed the issue, but never really fixed the issue in my mind. Um, and and just over time that summer, I took off the French to have that procedure. Um, I started in Wimbledon, continued to have some good results because, again, like. Wimbledon grass was my best surface and then I'd go into the US hardcourt season and that was again probably the, the best part of the season of you know the, that I had throughout the year and so I had some success I'd beat some good players lost to you know lost some really good players whatever and uh, you know, just slowly over that summer, it was just started deteriorating. My mind was going into places anxiety-wise that I just had never been before, never understood. And, you know, have, I didn't, I wasn't around anyone with any mental health issues, unfortunately. So I didn't know what was going on um, and I didn't gather it until it was too late, really. And, um, you know, that's sort of fast forwarding to the U.S. Open 2012. Physically, Marty Fish had been going
3: through a lot on and off the court. His struggles with his weight, heart, and body were well-documented, but the powder keg was about to be lit ablaze because of a battle within. The fragility of the human spirit is akin to a house of cards. Pull one, and they all can come tumbling down. Most deal with this in private. Marty dealt with it heading to the grandest stage in the sport of tennis, while preparing to face the greatest of all time.
1: Visit Safeway.com for more details.
0: As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds,
1: it was shocking.
0: I have to know, what
1: were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought.
3: So you're playing Roger and tell me about it. And, and what do you realize now that you look back on it and you know so much more about yourself and mental health?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's like, what could I have done differently? I guess I could have spotted it earlier, could have talked about it earlier. I mean, not could have, definitely could have uh, or should have. Um, but me being uneducated on in that world um, didn't really allow me to do that. Um, I, I didn't know. And so I get in the car heading to the U.S. Open to play what is, you know, the pinnacle of our sport, you know, the fourth round or, you know, deep, you know, middle or deep into a Grand Slam, which happens to be the biggest term of the year, the U.S. Open, the one the U.S. players want to win the most or want to do well the most. Playing Roger Federer on Labor Day weekend, the greatest player of all time. I mean, this is the match that I trained and sacrificed so much to get to. Right. And not for a second would i have thought you know for how bad i felt um anxiety attacks panic attacks every 15 minutes of the day um no no reprieve at all dude like just none whatsoever and i'm in the the transportation headed to the courts with my wife my trainer and my coach is already at the courts getting ready you know it's sort of getting ready getting everything ready to go balls practice you know all that stuff and yeah, obviously it's a big day for everyone and um and i'm crying in the car i'm not a crier at all and um i I don't know what i'm gonna do i don't know you know i'm gonna i'm gonna go out there somehow i'm gonna lose to fetters you know in pretty quick fashion i'm sure and uh, you know in front of millions of people watching and thousands of people there whatever and i'm thinking about all this stuff and you know and and as athletes as you know like we're and individual athletes and especially tennis like we are trained at a really young age to never show the other to show the opponent how we're feeling how we're doing we're tired are we pissed um i wasn't great at that part the upset part um the negative energy and stuff i i was pretty outward about but the the other stuff um i would hide it if i was tired i would hide it if i was hot i would hide it if it was you know i would i would never show that weakness ever right and so driving to the courts that day, I needed someone like my wife who hadn't grown up or someone in my support system who hadn't grown up like that in that lifestyle. Because like you, if, if you and I were sitting in there, you never would have thought of it to go, hey, dude, you know you don't have to play like you never would have thought that and i never would have thought no. that ever yeah. and so thank god my wife was there to where she you know again didn't grow up in that lifestyle or that you know like hey you you're forced to do that like you get out there goddammit, it and you do and you get out there now and you don't say a word and you go beat that guy you know kind of thing she says to me you know you don't have to play and like right away this like weight just lifted off my shoulders and i was like oh my god i don't actually have to play and I never dude, I, in my wildest dreams, I never would have thought that ever. So if she wasn't there, I would, have, you know, I don't know, I would have stepped out there, I would try to play, I would have been worse off, I'm sure. Um, and it made me feel better. It made me feel better right away. When she said that when I didn't have to play, it made me feel better. Um, when I knew that I could go home, you know, like i had been on the road a while. And like reset and try and get some help, try and get a doctor and some medication and just some therapy or something, just something to help me because I was so desperate. I was so bad, dude. I mean, I was I was in such a bad place that I, you know, I thought maybe I was going to I was afraid I was going to hurt myself. I was afraid I was going to hurt someone around me. Um and luckily, and it's, you know, number one for me in terms of the mental health is a support system. If you don't have a support system that understands and is allowing you to be vulnerable and allowing you to uh, be open and, and listening, and if you don't have that, man, it can. You, we see the, I mean, we see Suicide rates. We see suicide rates in children. We see, you know, people on the street, homeless people. I mean, those those people aren't aren't well, and they were okay at one point. And so that's a huge part for me is that support system. If I didn't have the support system I had, there's no telling where I'd be today.
3: Yeah, same here, man. Uh, Thank goodness for her. How did you get charged in the court of public opinion after withdrawing from the match? You know, what was the stigma around mental health at that time in sports and in society?
4: Yeah, luckily it was. Early on in the social media craze. Um, so, like, you know, I had Twitter, I think, but it wasn't um, as toxic. I was recognizable, I guess, because I was the number one American and I had played some big matches that cup those couple years or whatever. And so people would, you know, I remember I was on the plane heading back to back home that after that U.S. Open and oh, man, what happened to you? You know, are you okay? You know, kind of stuff like just on the plane and it just felt really uncomfortable. Um, So I stayed home. I stayed home for like four straight months. I didn't do anything. If I left my house, I went to the psychiatrist. That was the only time I left my house.
3: I don't want to get too dark here or make you relive it too much. It it does seem that after the withdrawal, you really kind of spiraled and uh, were in a lot of pain and and crisis. How did you eventually start to work your way out of that? And how long did it take to even want to start to do that work?
4: Yeah, um, well, I wanted to start it right away because I was really bad. Um, I wanted to get my life back. I wanted to get back to playing a round of golf with my buddies and having a beer, like, you know, as simple as that. Um I was far away from it um, at the time. Um, I felt like it was never gonna happen. Um, so I was desperate to get help. Um, and that was obviously a blessing in disguise, I'm sure. Like just wanting to do that, being open to seeing someone being vulnerable with someone, you know, a doctor that I've never met before. Um so um uh, you know, it took four months, was the was the first time we left the house to not go to the doctor. It was to go to a movie. Um, had a Xanax in my pocket. I never, yeah. I didn't like Xanax. I never took it. I never wanted to take it, um, but I knew that if it was there in my back pocket that I would feel a little bit more comfortable. Uh, we sat in the, the first seat next to the exit so I could leave right away if I didn't, you know, kind of thing. I don't know what it movie manifest? it was. How would it manifest? It could be anything, man. It could have been, you know, did I eat too much and, like, my stomach was a little full and then I, you know, just if I felt off at all, you know, if I had... I'm battling, I you know, if you can hear it or not, but I'm battling like a head cold, chest cold right now. Man, 10 year, nine years ago, I'd be freaking out. <laughs> like, what's wrong with me? Yeah, like I was desperate for the help. Um, so we were really lucky. We found a, a psychiatrist that was really good, um, put me on some medication that I still take to this day that was really good. Um, I take Lexapro. I take 25 milligrams of Lexapro every day. I'm not afraid to admit that I'm medication so loved, helped so me. i Exactly. Same stuff. Yeah. Same type of stuff. It was just what was better for each individual. And that's one thing that I, you know, that like, as people, um, I've had a lot of conversations about mental health, which is great trying to educate people. And that was one thing that was so beneficial for, you know, with the doc coming out was just to try and educate people on what mental health is, uh, trying to spot it, trying to just be helpful to other people, um, people you don't know or whatever, because it's, in my opinion, a a, sort of a physical injury. I mean, it's your brain. Your brain's part of your body. And I know they call it mental health, but I think it's physical. It's just not an injury that you can see. Um, it's not like an ankle injury that you trained or sprained your ankle in the NBA. And you. I can see that. I can see you limping around. You can't see my issues with mental health because they're internal. And, um, So it really helped me in, you know, not judging people, um, not judging why people do certain things, why they believe certain things, um, because you just never know what somebody's dealing with on a daily basis. So, you know, that was the, the sort of the main goal was just to just to be open about give someone a success story and be open about my issues and what I struggled with and how there's you know, a, you're not alone. And there's tens of millions of Americans that deal with mental health issues every day. Um, and again, it's just, you never know. Everybody's dealing with something. Everybody has issues and some people can handle them better than others. And some people can't, doesn't make you less of a person, less of a man, less of a woman. Um, it just means that, um, in your world, in your bubble, Mental health doesn't care what you do for a living. They don't care if you're an ex-NBA player, an ex-tennis player, an ex-athlete, or a journalist now, or a podcaster now, or whatever. Um, Everyone's bubble and everyone's world is their own. We're all trying to, you know, trying to do well for each other and and, and our families and trying to provide. And and I don't care if you're, you know garbage man or a contractor or a construction worker or anything like the guy that, that cuts my, my lawn is still trying to provide for his family and he could have the same mental health issues that I did um, and so it's not like mine were tougher or bigger than anyone else's I think it's really important for people to understand that.
3: You know, I'm so glad you said that. So often people don't realize when someone's struggling, but sometimes we don't even fully understand or recognize it in in ourselves. Do you still have ways and methods and check-ins to make sure, you know, that you're doing what you need to do?
4: hundred percent. I actually had a a rough day yesterday because I wasn't feeling that well. I just mentioned I had like a cold, I had like these chest cold, you know, and this COVID things going around and apparently it's in your respiratory and like, yeah, I haven't had COVID, but like it's, I, you know, it's a respiratory thing. People say they don't breathe very well or whatever. And like, I got tested and I don't have it, but like, you know, I got a chest cold and like before COVID I got a chest cold. You're like, all right, well get going. Like, what's the big deal, you know, whatever. And, uh, it's just my, you know, your mind can just sort of spiral into places that are uncomfortable. And, um, and so I had a bad day yesterday. And so what I do is I, um, you know, and this is a personal thing, not personal, like I don't want to tell people, but personal, like just to me, this helps me is that um, I try and take my mind, I try and change the channel on negative thoughts, I call it like literally like just like a remote control, I try and change the channel. And so what I do is I'll take my mind to, I love golf. So like, I'll take my mind to a golf course, my favorite golf course in the world is this, like, small city in North Carolina no one's ever heard of. And it's not even that, you know, it's a- nice golf course and pretty and it's North Carolina and the Blue Ridge Mountains but like it's not like Augusta you know anything like that and like I'll take my mind there and I'll be super detailed and vivid about what I'm doing um, like the what is the smell in the air what is the weather like what color is all the way down to like the number on my golf ball and what what color is my tee and Rex I'll tell you dude like I'll, and I'll play every shot so I'll play I'll hit every shot you know and every shot's perfect it, beautiful yeah. shot beautiful drive you know little baby yeah. draw over mm-hmm. dog leg right up the hill par five you know his second shot on the green i'll make eagle you know every time i make an eagle you know par three next hole very vivid in detail right with like with what i'm doing um so my mind is i'm trying i'm changing the channel yes. I'm, I'm internally my mind is changing from how i'm feeling and this anxiety or panic or depression or whatever that i'm having is now i'm changing my mind to some a happy place for me um I've never gotten to the fourth hole in my entire life. Meaning that like, I, I done get it, that it fast. Yeah. And like, it does work. It's, you know, for me, it works where I can change the channel on my negative thoughts right, right there. Um, it takes, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine minutes. But again, I'm very detailed. I don't think for a second about how I'm feeling. Um, and that works for me. So like, If anyone's listening to this or does listen to this, and they're like, man, I don't know how to get my mind out of it. um, I wouldn't say it's easy, but there are ways to do it. And that is a way what I would suggest is trying to, you know, like if it was you and you're, you know, you, if it was someone who loves basketball, take yourself to that gym that you have a pickup game at every Wednesday morning at eight o'clock and like put yourself in a game and be super detailed and vivid with the all the way down to the to the basketball to what you're wearing to what the other guys are wearing the shoes you got these perfect steph curry shoes on brand new you know whatever and then all all of a sudden i guarantee you man you won't even get to five all in the in the game and you'll be like okay i feel okay now and i'm um,
3: definitely trying i'm definitely trying because i i can work my way into a bad mood like nobody's business you know before i know it i'm i've gone down a rabbit hole so I'm definitely going to try to employ it. You know, you'd gone and you'd done the work on yourselves. You've you've seen a psychologist. You're doing everything that you can do, and then you're feeling well enough to get back out there. Uh, what did it mean to play that doubles match with Andy after all these years later?
2: Andy Roddick is returning to tennis. Well, for one tournament at least, the former world number one announced he's going to be partnering with his good buddy Marty Fish in doubles at the Atlanta Open next month. Marty Fish, you may have heard, has been coping with some anxiety disorders in recent years. He plans to play singles in Atlanta as well. The two-time former Atlanta champion made his ATP return back in March, losing at Indian Wells. Marty, who is now a father to son Beckett, is not committing to a full-time comeback as he continues to face some emotional challenges.
4: That was great. Um, There was only one player that i would want to play that match with um and that was him and conversely there was only one player that he was going to come back and play with and that was me and so it was the per it was perfect um we weren't trying to win the tournament dude we were never going to win the tournament i mean we were happy to win a match to be honest with you he was old and fat and and i was <laughs> and i and i hadn't played a doubles match in forever and yeah like but he you're all he, cut up and ripped up now I was okay. Yeah, I was t- I, I, I got myself back in shape. I knew how to do that. I knew I know how to get myself back in shape. I also know how to get myself out of shape really yeah, well same. too now. <laughs> yeah. But but no, he, he um that was super special. I'll never forget that. Um never forget, you know, sort of asking him if he would like to do that, him having to re-enter the drug testing pool, yeah, you know, yeah. to where uh, those gummies are not That's allowed, right. to, yep. he's not allowed to be off. taking those right now. Um and so he sacrificed that for me which is good for him for for <laughs> a week but yeah no nah, but um but it was great it was also great um look I I wanted personally I wanted to jump back in the fire play I wanted to get back to the U.S. Open that was my ultimate goal uh it was never about winning the tournament or even winning a match I, I wanted to finish my career at the place that had taken all of it away from me um and I was able to do that. I was able to still do it at a fairly high level. I did win my first match. I should have won my second and served for the match. And this is like a, a competitor go, yeah, tennis player. Yeah, like yeah. let me let me dwell on the last match I played <laughs> That's because right. let me tell you that it wasn't about winning when um I felt yeah, like it right. was about winning. Um <laughs> no and and then ultimately it was just giving folks that Success story that I didn't necessarily have when I was going through it because I I mentioned that I was a big sports fan and um, sports is, has been my whole life and really only been my yeah. my whole life and so um, I love all sports I watch everything from mixed martial arts all the way down to European soccer to you know European football to you know to every mainstream sport here right and I was desperately as I was going through this process in 2012 looking for someone in sports that like i could lean on and go well there's there's a man or woman that was successful had it taken away from them whether it be you know mental health or anxiety panic depression whatever it was and then and then ultimately got it back and was you know played again at a high level i didn't have that and um and so ultimately that was the goal was to come out with a a story in the Players Tribune, um, which is which I love. I love that sort of um, medium of uh, with athletes to be able to write, you know, write what we want to write and have it narrated by us, and you know, and all that, and then and come out with a, a piece there in my last tournament, and then ultimately, you know, have them and and Netflix partner together and just have that that platform of Netflix, which is just enormous. Um, it was a perfect storm uh, with this documentary because. Not only do I love the Players Tribune and Net- and obviously the platform that Netflix gives, but um, the guys who who directed and produced the doc, the Way Brothers, Mac and Chap Way, they're unbelievable. Um, if you've ever if you love documentaries and and um, If you're ever on Netflix or whatever, they've they've done a couple documentaries called one called Wild Wild Country, which won a bunch of Emmys. Phenomenal doc. um, Battered Bastards of Baseball. Phenomenal doc. I mean, they're just like geniuses at a young age. And they had a, a history of tennis, a small history of mental health as well. It was a perfect storm of all things coming together um and then on top of it we filmed it in 2018 and covid uh took a bit of a hit because it's a five-part series and they had to film them all they had to all you know they had to all be done for them to release them all and they weren't and they weren't done we were supposed to it was supposed to come out april of 2020 um and took a while to have them all film and and finish and it's funny how you know and i watched them all and seen the others and they're all great um Uh, they're phenomenal but um the one that you know they're they're all sort of stories this one you know mine of mental health and sort of getting a grasp on it and and um championing mental health and and being open and vocal about it um seemed to be it's funny how it came into place with the timing right like again it was supposed to come out a year and a half ago and a year and a half ago, we weren't like Tyson Fury. Wasn't talking about his mental health after winning the, you know, after defending his belt, uh, Naomi Osaka was not talking about not wanting to chat with the media at the French open and how she's not, you know, doesn't do well with the media and her mental health and Simone Biles, uh, you know, having the twisties and not, you know, people not understanding what that is and, yeah. and not even people being open and okay with her. Um, you know, it's just a bummer. A lot of the, you know, you get a lot of like men who would come out and see those women and they just go, oh, toughen up, you know, and like we know who they are, right? We, we know exactly who we're talking about. And like it's a bummer because that just shows me a, um, they're just uneducated on the topic um, of mental health. And that's okay. Like not everybody understands mental health because if you've never been through it, like you and I have, it's really difficult to understand. You can be um, more open or like, you know, okay with their decisions um, than people were, but it's really difficult to understand it. And like, do you really think that, like I know Naomi really well and, and I know her that she really understands her place in history. She wants to be one of the greatest female tennis players ever, uh, she feels like she can do it, and for her to win two straight slams, US Open in Australia, and then play the French and pull out, um, going for three in a row, and you know trying to, again, become one of the best tennis players of all time, um, really showed me something, that she was struggling with something, You know, no one wants to pry, and I didn't even want to pry necessarily, I sent her a text and said, hey, I'm always here if you ever need anything, and that's that, she didn't respond, and she didn't need to respond. Um, Simone Biles I don't know her at all I know that she's the greatest female gymnast of all time I know she worked her ass off to get to this Olympics and and the other Olympics and and you know winning all those gold medals and all the medals and the world championships and stuff do you really honestly think that she would just pull out of the Olympics because she doesn't want to lose like you know so I feel like we needed you know like I've seen a couple uh, um, advertisements of like a a football player, you know, coming out and saying like they, you know, they struggled with their mental health. Like that guy's tough, right? Tyson Fury is the definition of tough. And he struggled with his mental health. He struggled with suicide. He struggled with addiction. He struggled with a lot of those things. For someone like him to come out, it just speaks. Those people who were vocal about Naomi and, and Simone are pretty quiet about Tyson Fury and myself and Kevin Love and Demar Derozan and and all these other guys coming out that um, Dak Prescott yeah that are saying yeah. man I really struggled with my mental health and so maybe it needed that like sort of male dominant kind of person you know that combat sports type of person the gladiator ish type of sport because because um, it just didn't seem like it resonated with the sort of You know, half the country, male person who's just like, just act tough, you know, and like who's never played a sport. Stop crying. Stop crying. Get out there. So like, it's just not about that. And if you can see the history of some of myself or or you or Tyson Fury or these guys, like they are tough. Like like we are tough. We we we're actually tougher for coming out and being open about it than we are if we hadn't. I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> uh so you you've battled back
3: uh in your year at the u.s open then you retire let's talk about the davis cup quickly explain to our listeners and then tell me about what it meant to be asked to be the captain of the davis cup team
4: it still sounds cool um even when you say that it was 2000 <laughs> 2019 was my first year um an absolute dream job um what an being, honor being the davis cup yeah, true honor um even when i play you know Davis cup is different than, uh, it's our team competition for the U S in tennis. Okay. And, um, for those who don't know, and if you follow golf a little bit, you know, the Ryder cup, um, is similar Ryder cup. They've got 12 players, um, that make the Ryder cup team, several vice captains and things like that. And obviously a captain. Um, so there's 12 guys that, that make that team. Um, we, we get four um, every time we play. And, and so four guys, you know, so think back to obviously Andy Roddick, James Blake, the Brian brothers were incredible Davis cup players. So like, it was really hard to get on a team in the first place. Um, I was really lucky to play, uh, a lot in Davis cup. I said, yes, every single time I was asked. Um, I even got married, like, couple days later and played one in spain and like in a bowl ring and like it it was just so you know just some of my greatest memories on the court off the court were around davis cups i've even when i was playing i was infatuated by the captaincy i just was like it was such a cool like even i would just sort of study it and like i had some really cool captains too i played for john McEnroe, patrick McEnroe, and jim courier were three captains that i had and like you know um Jim Courier was really cool to have because I knew when I sat down that, um, it, any scenario that I was in the tennis court that day or that match or that practice, I knew he had already been in it tenfold, you know? So like, it was just an, a nice thing to feel, um, when you'd sit down and be a part of it. So I was like, even while I was playing, I was really interested in like what that captaincy meant or what it was and just what an honor it was. And so I, I've never interviewed for anything in my life. Like, I've just played tennis, you know. Yeah, so like I've right. never had to interview any in, in anything. And and so I didn't know, you know, so like this job came up and there lots of players wanted it, right? Like lots of ex players want it. Um and including my friends, my closest friends, who I've mentioned here before. And and I didn't know any different but to lean on like my work ethic or like my relationships and just literally call everyone that had anything to do with it. Whether I thought they did or they didn't, I'd call them and I'd say, look, this is what Davis Cup meant to me. This is what the Davis Cup captaincy would mean to me. Um, And I got it. And I was shocked that I got it and not shocked. And like, you know, I was just like, I was so honored and fortunate. And it's not a huge time consumption. Look, it's like we play two ties a year. You know, it's like a couple weeks out of the year. Um, I keep in touch with, Every one of the guys, you know, all the way in the top 100, 120, something like that, um, Every ma- on an every match basis, they'll get a text from me or something to say, hey, good job or bad luck. I'm thinking about you, like, you know, whatever. And... I love it, man, and I, I think um, I hope to a T that um, that they love me as the captain too, and I hope that we play uh, this year in Turin, Italy. Um, we play our group is Italy and Colombia, um, so Italy in Italy will be really tough. They have some stud youngsters that are on their team, but um, it's all you know. It's always something special, man, when you put the red, white, and blue and the flag on your chest, and and you just walk around with that jacket on that track jacket. It's just so special
3: man, that's just amazing. I grew up watching it myself. Uh, finally, Mari, I want to give you an open forum here to talk about any part of your experience that you think, you know, might've been missed or something that you want to want the listeners to know or understand a little bit better. Uh, what can those who relate to your story do to seek help?
4: Um, yeah, thanks. So, I mean, I would say three main things, um, just in terms of your mental health, would be a support system would be number one for me um, getting like alerting or letting people around you that l- loved ones that love, you know, that you're uh, not feeling well or that, um, You may have you're having these thoughts or you're uncomfortable about a few things. Um, being open and honest and vulnerable with loved ones is really important. Um, number two, I think, and maybe this isn't necessarily in particular order, but uh, therapy, help, um, get help, seek help, ask for help. You can get a psychiatrist, they can, there is medication or therapy that can take this stuff away. It really can. Like, I know that you probably, and there's people that may be listening that haven't tried medication because they don't like what it may. Makes them feel like lexapro for me doesn't mess with my cognitive frame at all um it just simply adds serotonin a chemical that's emptied in your brain when you're having those mental health issues um and it just allows it to to enter back in your brain um so there is like at the worst cases there are there is medication that you can take to get you you know back to feeling better um And then lastly, find, um, learn from every episode that you have. Um, You know, why did I have this on an airplane when I was by myself? Oh, well, maybe I had an extra cup of coffee that day, and maybe I just had too much caffeine, and it made my heart race, and then that made me feel uncomfortable, and that's where I got to. So, like really learn and, and sort of understand where you are, why um, you feel like that. Um, maybe, you know, you know yourself better than anyone else does. And so you can sort of say, okay, well, I'm a little more stressed right now than normal or, and you don't want a anxiety or stress-free life. Like you do not want, you can't get, you won't get out of bed if you have that. Like, so you want and need stress in your life, but there's just too much stress that can be put on. Um, so just understand that. And then, you know, again, like, you're not alone like there're like tens of millions of people literally every day just in this country deal with mental health and just think of all the children that are dealing with you know with this covid and this pandemic and how their lives have sort of been turned upside down and and you're just you're not alone um, and it's it's they're actually fairly normal thoughts um, if you just understand that and be okay with that and be open with that um, don't be. Uh, too manly or, or tough uh, to, you know, to think that, you know, us can't happen to me. It I promise you, it does not care what you do for a living or what your last name is. I promise you that. So um, be open, be honest, seek help. Um, and uh, and I promise you that you'll beat it. It won't go away and it won't go away forever. It just doesn't work like that. But just embrace it and it'll be a part of my life forever um, and I'll beat it every single day. Marty, man, I can't
3: thank you enough for, uh, joining and being so brave, letting people know about your story and, uh, your journey with mental health. My door is always open to you, buddy.
4: I appreciate that. And thanks for having me, Rex. Charges, Charges, Charges. Hey.
3: Hey. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio.
1: visit Toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey there, it's Ryan Seacrest for Safeway. Now that spring is here, it's time to focus on self-care and revitalize your personal care routine. Now through March 26th, head in store, shop for all your favorite personal care essentials and earn four times rewards points. Shop for items like Crest toothpaste, secret deodorant, Old Spice deodorant, or Gillette razors. Offer expires March 26th restrictions apply. Promotions may vary. Visit Safeway.com for more details.
3: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford,
1: our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person.
2: Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio
1: app.
6: Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline.
1: Joining me today is Alison Bree.